Welcome back to Editing Aloud. Um, much to talk about as always, and I have with me uh, on Zoom uh, two of our editors, Rob Rose of the Financial Mail and Lucanio from Business Day, and PwC's Chief Economist, Lulu Krugel. Lulu, you were in the President's, Presidency's Economic Colloquium last week. Um, what is the utility of a sort of a talk shop like that at a time like this? And how many of those ideas do you think percolated through into last night's stimulus package that the president announced? Um, Hilary, uh, that's that's a, a very good, good point. We were actually debating beforehand, are we going to get something out of this? Because there were just so many ideas that was put on the table. But I think the way in which the presidency tried to structure it is really to say, um, instead of everybody coming with their own ideas, that they wanted very specific inputs around aspects such as what would the suggested stimulus um, achieve, who would benefit from it, what would the cost of it be, is it something that would be permanently in place or something that's only temporary. Um, they also bucketed it around fiscal, monetary and, and other types of interventions, which I thought was useful because at the end of the day, from literally dozens and dozens of submissions, they were able to pull together um, some inputs. And I do think it, it had an impact um, on, on what we heard last night and where some of the ideas are going. I mean, there's still uh, quite a bit that we need to understand from stimulus package and that I think we will hear over the next two or three days. But um, it was interesting, very diverse ideas that came out. Some of it uh, a little bit out there, but I think that is what we need at the moment in South Africa. And what would be your big questions arising out of last night's 500 billion rand stimulus package that the president finally revealed to the nation? What are the big issues you really want more detail on now? Well, I think uh, one of the things that he did touch on and, and that has been a concern for me from, from the get-go is um, that Corona doesn't overtake the other challenges that we had in the economy and doesn't take the attention away from the fact that we still uh, very much need to restructure the economy and that there's some serious changes that needs to be made. He did allude to the SOEs very briefly, but still I feel um, that I hope that the challenges that we had before this, that's not going to go away, in fact it's going to be amplified by what we're seeing at the moment, is still on the table and we're still trying to fix that. So that was the one thing. Then um, secondly, in terms of a bit of a, an, a vision of what the economy would look like beyond this, uh, what's the thinking in terms of rebuilding the economy around which sectors and, and what's some of the practical detail around that. Maybe it's a little bit early for that, but we hope to hear something soon. Rob Rose, what was your take on last night's 500 billion package? The president said it's equal to the scale of disruption on the economy. Um, is it indeed equal to the scale of disruption? Is it enough? Well, I think it's a lot of money. I mean, it's less than the one trillion that was talked about, but it's, I think it's a lot more than some expected. Mm -hmm. To me, the big question is, how do you afford this? Where do you get the money from? And, and things like, for example, the child grant um, and some of those, you know, the 50 billion extra for grants, how do you then reverse it after six months? The new unemployment um, benefits, the 350 rand a month, how do you in November then say that you want to reverse this? And I think that... Um, a lot of the social partners of the ANC will not want to go back. So I think that how sustainable the, the you know these kind of interventions are in the longer term to me is the question because it's it's I mean it pushes the the deficit up to something to 17% or something really huge. So I think that a lot of people might think oh well we can afford this and this is what we're doing. 
um, and not want to see this as an emergency aid package. So that to me is one of the big, one of the big worries coming out of it. Um, and the other thing to me that I think was missing yesterday, which we'll get on Thursday, obviously, is the is the plan to lift the lockdown, what shape it's going to take, and how it will look. And I think in terms of how we assess our economic damage going forward, that'll that'll obviously be crucial to understand the maths around that. Lucania, have you had a close look at the package in terms of how affordable it is? Because on my reading of it, government itself wasn't actually going to cough up that much. Is that, is that an accurate reflection? That actually very, well, not, it's still a lot of money, but is it sustainable? Is it something government can afford? I would sort of, uh, yes, I would agree with everything that, that Robert said there, but I would also add some people on the left would also argue about whether, whether or not this is really is stimulus. Come on, we're describing it as a 500 billion rand stimulus, but then when you look at it closely, 130 billion of that is about reallocation of existing budget and existing spending. So that's a quarter of that 500 billion already out <laughs> in terms of like new stimulus. So that's not really new stimulus in that sense. And then obviously, like you know, that, that also includes this, this, this 200 billion rand like loan guarantee scheme. Like we don't actually know how that's going to work, whether that's going to be new money, and that's like, and also like because it's gone through intermediaries like through the banking sector, so we don't actually know how much of that will actually end up going into businesses. I mean, like they, an example would be like in the UK where they have like a, a similar scheme, but where, where, the, where the banks are guaranteed like something like 80 percent, so that they only suffer 20 percent loss at the most. But then. There's been, the take-up hasn't been that great, and now there's talk, oh, should it make it 100% cover? So there's all these kind of issues that, actually, that, are, that are still to be ironed out, and like in terms of, like, is, is it really actually stimulus? How much of this is stimulus, and how much of this is new money? Is it, I mean, is, it, is a central bank, for example, going to print new money, 200 billion, and give it to the banks? Or, so we still need to work out and see what, what actually is on the table, and hopefully to Minister Mboweni's budget, or like an extra budget will do that for us. Maybe answer some of the questions to Rob about funding as well. Well, if we're assuming we're getting IMF money just for health issues, where's the rest going to come from? Are we going to issue? Is it going to be through the bond market and I mean yields where they are? Does, does the central bank come back into play again? So so many questions <laughs> still. Actually, some of whom, some of which we should definitely put to the economist among us. Lulu, was this indeed stimulus? And where is the money going to come from? Yeah. It's it's a very good question. If you start uh, unpacking the numbers, um, very true. How much of it will really end up in the economy uh, in terms of, of real stimulus? Um, to be quite honest, if we look at um, a crisis of this nature, you almost want to see money in the hands of households and money in the hands of business in as easily and accessible way as possible. And there's so many things here that's still clouded in mystery. Um, as the Kanyo said, some of the guarantee packages. How long would that take to actually filter through to the economy? And um, you mentioned right at the beginning that the, the president said that this is relative to the size of the shock. It might be, but it's definitely not going to flow um, into the economy uh, simultaneous, simultaneous with the shock that we are experiencing. So we, we can't expect the similar kind of uplift from it. Um, and uh, yeah, in terms of the funding, the 130 billion coming from government in, in terms of reallocations of the budget. To be quite honest, I just have a, had a very brief look through the budget review a couple of weeks, two or so weeks ago, when this whole thing started to get you know real traction, and, and thought to myself, 
how difficult would it be to actually get extra funding? And it didn't take very long for me to get to 100 billion there just by looking at some of the items there. So I almost feel like, have they really gone back and rethought how they're going to spend the money? I suppose we'll hear that um, if the president, uh, if the minister actually delivers um, an emergency type budget, because to me, it felt a little bit like they probably just scraped a little bit here and there and, and didn't necessarily go back to 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 rethink how we're going to spend the money. It was pretty easy to get a, a hundred to a hundred billion from from just delaying some of the of the office buildings that they were planning to build and, and here and there and, and not even looking at at um, at a lot of the programs that's in place. In terms of the IMF funding agreed, um, we will have to look to see how that is structured. You mentioned the IMF, you mentioned the World Bank, the BRICS Bank, etc. I think um, what I just find a little bit confusing is that government and, and uh, amongst others, Minister Mbueni has referred to a few times to say that they're going to go to the IMF to get money specifically for COVID-19. And the IMF has made it very explicit that Doesn't they don't do have funding money, for COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah. It is general funding. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, the IMF, the IMF stuff is sort of quite clouded in politics in a sense, isn't it, Lulu? Um, uh, you know, which facility we're going for and how this is going to be managed politically and indeed economically is not very clear to me, certainly. Is it Exactly. I know there's, there's emergency funding that they've made available now. And it seems that the process is easier. But in terms of the requirements, it's a normal IMF requirements. And, um, you know, it's not specific for COVID-19. It is a loan like everything else that they provide. Um, so would we be going for that? Under that, apparently, we qualify for about 42 billion USD, um, which is a little bit more than I suppose that's, that's still left for us to fund over and above the budget. Um, I, it seems that government's not particularly keen to go for the normal, you know, IMF restructuring uh, package that comes with all the bells and whistles, and they want to keep it as, as separate from that as they possibly can to keep our sovereignty as it were. The, whether anyone has sovereignty in the middle of a crisis like this is, is a question. Um, Rob Rose, your Financial Mail cover story this week raises some questions about reaching, reaching those who really need it. Uh, how much will this do to tackle poverty, uh, support people through the fallout from this crisis? Tell us a bit about what you've said in the cover. Well, yeah, it's basically looking at a lot of the um, of the township areas and the really poor areas and, and asking the same questions that Lokanya and Lulu just did just now in, in terms of how much of this actually does go down, how much of the 500 billion actually goes, does go down to the people who need it. Um, and the fact is we just don't know yet. We don't know what the specifics are. Certainly you can say that the guarantee elements of the, you know, the 200 billion guarantee elements of the package uh, you couldn't class as a traditional stimulus package because um, essentially it's a guarantee for the banks. Uh, we've seen the bank shares rally quite quite a lot on the JSE today, I think. Um, and, and I think that you wouldn't necessarily consider that a classic stimulus thing. So I think the issue is how much is actually getting into the hands of the people who who need it. And we've seen the I, the UIF, which is supposed to be one of the one of the primary agencies doing this. Um, I mean, they're, they're haphazard. They're they're behind. Dramatically, I think of the 1.6 million personal or applications for people so far that they've had since this began, they haven't dealt with 60% of them. So they're far behind. And I think, you know, for businesses and for individual households, this is the kind of crisis where you, where you can't have bureaucracy getting in the way and people spending, you know, two months assessing things. 
Um, and so, I mean, that's essentially what we tried to get to. Yeah, I think the UIF, the, 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 number, the number that was given in the speech last night was, was, was 1.6 billion of a total of 40 billion has been paid out so far, which is really minimal. And yeah, that's yeah, four but, weeks but into the process, really. Um, yeah. Right? But also he said that, um, he said that 600,000 people, because that 1.6 billion was paid out to 600,000 individuals. Mm. And there's 1.6 billion, uh, 1.6 million individuals who've actually um, applied for the UIF relief, essentially. So of that, 600,000 of 1.6 million, they still haven't dealt with the vast majority of the UIF claims against them. And I think that that speaks to the fact that our government machinery isn't used to doing things this quickly. Um, and that there are going to be natural blockages because of that. And I think Actually, that's... And speaking of dysfunctional state entities, we cannot resist talking about our old national airline, South African Airways, and also the new national airline, which the government is now promising to get out of the ashes of the old SIA. Look, can you Mianda, is this kind of a fantasy world somehow where, where you sort of want to build a new airline at a time when globally airlines are crashing? I must say, like, uh, Hillary, when... Uh, um I think it was Carol Payton who told me this story before. I actually thought she was joking when she was telling me the first time, but I found it quite hard to believe. Apparently, they, 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 they came, there was a meeting, the government issued a statement saying, no, there was all drama over the weekend, obviously, about whether or not SAA was going to be wound down and uh, the transmit letters for all their stuff. Then on Monday, they came out with another letter saying, no, that's not the case. And we had discussions and there's consensus. And then the day, there was a strange thing in the end about how they're committed to having another, another airline in South Africa that's viable, that actually does not require any state funding. So, so I don't know like where you start with that one. I mean, how do you even start to analyze that? Who's going to be forming an airline now? Who's going to be funding it if not government? Government doesn't have the money. I mean, also, this is a week where, you know, Richard Branson is busy like uh, begging the UK taxpayer for money, you know, in order to keep Virgin alive. And, and, and somehow Pravin Gordon and unions are going to start a new airline in South Africa. I mean, I mean, you couldn't really make that up, could you? So well, I really it, don't it know what to say about it. It's sort of truth being now. stranger than fiction. Um, and and uh, well, the question one wants to ask Lucanio is, why is it so hard for them to say, look, this is the middle of a crisis. Airlines globally are falling to pieces. This is... This is the time when we need to say goodbye. We need to land now. Why is it so hard? I mean, I think it's a combination of things. But I think there's, I mean, obviously there's ideology, and there's also like the whole issue about job losses, which is which is a real issue. I don't want to minimize it, but then it's but then it's but it's an issue across the whole economy. I mean, it's the same approach I think the government has when it comes to ESCOM, for example. It's always the focus on the ten thousand jobs that are ESCOM as opposed to the 100,000 jobs that get lost in the wider economy because there's no power, because ESCOM isn't working. I think it's the same thing with, uh, you know, with, with, with SAA. You're worrying about the 4,000 jobs or other amenities at SAA, but not worrying really about the, the bigger impact on the economy and the other thousands, thousands more jobs out there that could get lost. And also the, the, the priorities. I mean, it, it, we're in the midst of a crisis. And, I mean, we can't, we're talking now about whether or not we're going to get money to people out there who are starving. And somehow, like, we, we're supposed to have these billions to start a new airline. I mean, Lulu, you spoke about looking ahead beyond the crisis to what are we going to do to address the economy's very profound challenges beyond the crisis. Now, is this SAA debacle, if you like? Uh, what is 
what is that signal? Yeah, I, I'm worried that it, it still shows that we haven't made the transition yet that it's not business as usual. Um, it was hard enough uh, to save SAA before this. I mean, the, the entire tourism industry is on its head and we have absolutely no idea how long it will take to actually recover. Um, people that know the industry are talking um, months, uh, years for, for international tourism and months before you get to to some kind of semblance of, no, of normality in terms of local tourism. So, um, or then uh, business, business use, etc. I think um, we, we need to accept that people's behavior beyond this is going to completely change. Um, I, and I completely agree with Lucanio. If I'm a private sector investor, even if, if there was absolutely um, no issues with SAA and there was a need to start an airline in South Africa, I would have seriously considered this the complete wrong time to do that um, and, and rather focus on trying to understand where we're going to end up after this. I'm not saying air travel is dead forever, but it's not the wisest of investments at this point in time. And there's really some other areas that, that need our focus. And it just concerns me that it seems that that headspace, that shift in headspace haven't, hasn't happened um, everywhere in government yet. Actually, how, Lulu, how bad does it look? I know you've been doing quite a lot of modeling, bottom up, I think, modeling um, on, on what yeah. the economic outcome of all this might be. I mean, how bad does it look to you? So, I mean, we're talking, there's a couple of numbers that's floating around, the Reserve Bank, 6%, etc. But uh, we're probably seeing um, a contraction anywhere between 8 and 10% um, of the economy in, in the scenario that we are in now. And that is if you if you look at just the bits and pieces of the economy that we've completely shut down. Uh, if you look at tourism for one, that's if you look at accommodation and hotels, et cetera, that's, that's one of the sectors that, that we expect a contraction in the region of about 30 odd percent this year. And that is if it starts recovering after we start opening up. So eight to 10 percent at least, um, if you add the little bits and pieces together from the economy, um, that is just not operating at the moment. And if we look at that survey that Stats SA published yesterday um, about how, what big parts of the economy is not operating at the moment or not operating at full capacity, and that 85% of the businesses that they've surveyed feel, feel that they are in financial distress, I, am, um, I don't think it's, it's crazy to think that the economy could contract by, by between 8 and 10% this year. Or worse. Rob Rose, in the middle of all of this, we are um, very uh, focused on roast chicken. <laughs> Rob? Please give me your take on the roast chicken debacle. I am trying to work out what can be in the heads of our political leaders that roast chicken has become so important. Hot, what is it? Hot prepared food. Um, as Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma put it, say goodbye to the lockdown. Kiss the lockdown goodbye, I think were her words, if we allow hot prepared food to be sold in supermarkets. I am completely, this is beyond me. What is the rationale? There must be one. That's a hot button, hot food issue. So I think that's um, the issue as well. But it's also, it really has all the people, to murder another chicken metaphor, all the people cooped up inside are using this as a, the suburban revolutionaries are getting out there and fighting this fight. Um, but I think to some extent, it's basically, it's, it's, not, it's not the roast chicken, it's basically the proxy for all the ridiculous rules. And the sense that people are frustrated already at having to deal with the lockdown. 
Um, and there's so many rules that are seem inexplicable and seem just like a, you know, an arbitrary ex abuse of power. For example, not not being allowed to export wine, an industry that is, you know, brings in 200, 200 million a week or so. I mean, for us not to be able to do that, it's, it seems senseless. There are senseless rules. And I think it's not the roast chicken, um, although you do see a lot of a lot of warriors on social social media who think that is the issue. It's more like, you know, the, the fact that we are having to deal with, with arbitrary rules that, that don't seem to work. And I think it plays into a lot of the hands of the people who want the lockdown to be lifted immediately. You think it hasn't really worked. And I think it, it's it's pushing that particular agenda. And that's where we're moving. I mean, in two days' time or, or so, we'll have greater clarity on how we're going to come out of this. And, um, and I think maybe tensions will, will dissolve to some extent and those cooped up urban revolutionaries will be happier. Of course, I mean, it's not only the urban revolutionaries, much more than the urban revolutionaries in um, Parkview or wherever it is who worry about roast chicken at Woolworths, are all the working class people who rely on sort of hot pup and gravy from, from the supermarket to sort of keep, keep going. Um, and I'm just wondering, I mean, Rob, to what extent should we worry that these, these, some of these rules will themselves undermine the whole legitimacy as you've as you've suggested on, on not just among urban revolutionaries but on among the population at large that the legitimacy of the lockdown could really be compl compromised making social unrest more likely making pushback against the rules that we really do need um, more likely I mean, are we finding the right balance mm. here do you think I mean, that's that's the issue is that I think that, you know, people like our police minister, like our transport minister, like in course, Lumini Zuma need to have a greater sense of just how precarious this is. I mean, they govern essentially, they're doing this lockdown based on the social license we give them. So if you essentially then decide that you're going to impose arbitrary rules on people, it diminishes the legitimacy of it and, and makes the, the odds of protest that much higher. Um, you know, I think that the president has a sense of that that tightrope, but I don't think some of his ministers do, and so I think that's the big issue that we're facing at the moment. Lulu, is that is that a real concern from your side? I mean, what is your biggest concern, I suppose, about about the where we find ourselves at this moment? Yeah, I hope we don't overthink. Um, you know opening up certain parts of the economy um, and, and that we should really, there should be parts of the economy that's a no-brainer where you just say, listen, let's let this go, um, let, let this run. Um, there's obviously portions, Rob mentioned the wine, um, some mining exports, other things that we need to think about. I think mining is a little bit more complex because the risks associated is, is, a, is potentially more from a healthcare perspective, not, not my area of, of expertise, but that would be my take on it. So. Um, there are parts where I just think, I hope that they're not going to overanalyze and overthink this and just realize that this is a part of the economy we, which we can just let run and let go without too much risk. So in my opinion, I'm thinking about it in three ways. First of all, we need to look at the economic value that the sectors bring, because obviously we need to generate um, GDP and we need to export and all of that. Then the economic risk for these sectors, are they potentially going to go under? And if it's sectors that's that's higher risk and high value, um, then in my opinion, you should focus there first and they might need some government support. But then if there's others that's maybe lower from an economic risk perspective and, and um, high in an economic value perspective, 
and there's low low transmission risk, then just open it up and, and let it start operating. I think I saw a, a document from Germany where they are looking at everything that they can possibly do online, allow that. You know, if you can, um, any online retail and anything that you can allow, uh, do that because, um, I mean, the same rules would apply as somebody uh, delivering food uh, to your home. I think you can, that's an area where you can very safely uh, continue with social distancing um, without changing too much in terms of what we're doing at the moment. I thought one would rather see Uber drivers or taxi drivers go to the townships and take stuff there than see those really dangerously unhealthy yeah. long lines congregating at township supermarkets. Uh, look, honey, I'm actually going to give you the last word here because we're coming coming to the end of the show. I mean, what, what is it, look, honey, that you would like to see on Thursday evening when the president comes back to talk to us again about the, I think it is the risk-adjusted reopening of the economy? I think this is just what Lulu and Robert said. I would like to just say, like, a sense that he's been listening to the adults in the in the in the cabinet. You know that that is actually you know that that that, that is evidence based and, and and that is rational and also that that is well explained to people because like, you know to do this you need the confidence of the people. People have to consent to do it. And if you're arbitrarily changing rules every day, you you're not going to get that. That's all we have time for this evening, um, but there's going to be lots more happening between now and next week. So please do join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay well.